once in a while, the people that we admire the most actually do something to show that they're just a normal person, that they're human after all. And we secretly give a little sigh of relief when those that we have put on a pedestal show that they're really human. When the smartest kid in school, the one that always gets all A's, gets a B, we think, wow, this guy's really human after all. And it's comforting to watch a professional hockey game and see these guys make mistakes and give the puck to the other team and the other team scores. And that makes me feel good to know that they're human after all. And then we also like to know that our leaders are human. And I try to prove that to you every Sunday morning here with mistakes that we make. But right or wrong, it makes us feel a little better knowing that others have the same struggles that we have. So we're in a series of messages where we're looking at the message and method of our Savior. And we've been learning that the only person worthy of being placed on that pedestal is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that was because he was God in the flesh. So John 1, 14 the word became a human and lived among us. We saw his glory, the, the glory that belongs to the only son of the father. And he was full of grace and truth. And, and then in Colossians 9, all of God lives fully in Christ, even when Christ was on earth. So God was fully human and, excuse me, Jesus was fully human and Jesus was fully God and I can't fully explain it, but I believe it because that's what the Bible teaches me. So today what we're going to do is look at the human side of God in the flesh as Jesus contemplates dying on the cross. And we'll see all the implications and all the pain that accompany them. And there's an important distinction to remember. Jesus never fails. He never gives in to temptation. So let's take a look at the humanity of Jesus. And this actually should provide us with some comfort and challenge as well. Because Jesus suffered like we do. Jesus experienced anxiety to the point of sweating so profusely that one of the scriptures we'll look at says that his sweat was like drops of blood falling off his body. So we should also be comforted by his victory and realize that we can overcome the weaknesses of the flesh as well. So there was a discussion of humanity versus divinity. During the first 300 years after Jesus went back to heaven, this is what the scholars were talking about. Like some would say, he's God. He, he said that he existed before Abraham. He, he said that he and the Father are one. We read about him healing and performing other miracles. He was God. He couldn't be a man. God's spirit is omnipresent. How could that have skin on it? And then others are on the other spectrum and they say, well, obviously he was just a man. He ate and slept. He touched people. He even died. So Jesus couldn't have been God. He talked to God and he called God Father. So if God is one, how could Jesus and God both be one? So the leaders of the church, they argued back and forth. 
was his nature one of divinity or was it one of humanity? And thankfully, they settled on the truth that we find in Scripture. And that was the fact that Jesus had two natures, that he was divine and that he was human and that they were both present in the person of Jesus Christ. So he was fully God and fully human. Now the discussion continues today, and I know of pastors and church leaders who will say things like the fact that Jesus wasn't fully God. And then on the other hand, people will excuse their behavior by saying, well, nobody's perfect other than Jesus, and and he was God. How can you expect me to live any differently in my life? So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how Jesus could be fully human and fully God. But that's what the scriptures tell us. And he wasn't half God and half human. He had the complete character of God and he had a complete human side as well. Paul wrote this in Colossians 1. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Everything comes from him. He is the first one who was raised from the dead. So in all things, Jesus has first place. God was pleased for all of himself to live in Christ. So everything, there wasn't anything held back. Jesus was completely human and completely God. So one guy said this, he said that Jesus was a manly God and a godly man. But we have a hard time visualizing that because a lot of people have this picture of Jesus walking around and there's this glow around him because he's God and everybody can see that. But that's not true. That's not a part of it. We see him as fully human as well as fully God. Max Lucado said, you know, it's easier for us to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. For heaven's sake, don't do that. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the muck and mire of our world because only if we let him in can he pull us out. And that's so true. People want to make Jesus be a certain way, but he was fully God. He was fully human. So Philippians 2 uh, captures the humility that he displayed. In your lives... You must think and act like Christ Jesus. Christ himself was like God in everything, but he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. But he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. And when he was living as a man, he humbled himself and was fully obedient to God, even when that caused his death, death on a cross. So we see Jesus struggle with his humanity and divinity. And first of all, we notice the human pain of Jesus. And as the Bible says, the word became flesh. And he did feel the stress and the pressures and the hurts that we feel, that we face in our lives. And we're going to pick it up in Luke where Jesus had left his disciples to go and pray. Howard Eddington said, It would seem there is, in all of us, the need for a secret place, a place for retreat, a place where we can go apart from the pressures of life, 
And it's not important whether there are few or many people there, just so that we feel safe and secure. It's a place where we can go and let our guard down. And for me, that's my men's life group that I lead. I can just go and be a normal man as a part of the group when I'm there. And they've been sworn to secrecy if I confess to anything that I don't want the rest of the church to know. But no, we're, we're okay there. <laughs> but the place that provided this setting for Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. And it was right across the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are four different emotions that describe the human pain that he was feeling in the garden. And this is before he even makes it to the cross and the pain he would experience there. And the first pain was anxiety over the future. This text is the turning point in Christ's life. It's coming to a showdown with Satan. And you might be surprised to know that the showdown didn't play, actually take place on a cross on a hill called Mount Calvary. But the showdown actually was fought on the ground of an olive grove, just a, a, about a mile away from there. And in Luke 22, we pick up in verse 39. Jesus left the city and went to the Mount of Olives, as he often did, and his followers went with him. And when he reached the place, he said to them, pray for strength against temptation. Then Jesus went about a stone's throw away from them. That's about 26 feet. He kneeled down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take away this cup of suffering, but do what you want, not what I want. In other translations that may say, but let me do what you will, not what I will. And then an angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. And being full of pain, Jesus prayed even harder. And this is where it says, he sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So when facing anxiety, Jesus set an amazing example for each one of us. Because by taking his trouble to his heavenly father in prayer, he showed us what we need to do. And the tragedy today isn't the fact that there is unanswered prayer. The biggest tragedy today is unoffered prayer. And Christ gives us this example. He shows us that when we're having a difficult time, we need to turn to God. And then no apology is required. All we need to do is come to him and be persistent and repetitious and prove that we mean what we say. Now we have the benefit of not knowing the future, but Jesus knew the future. See, we think it would be great to know everything that was going to happen. But Jesus knew everything that was going to happen, and he doesn't think it's so great. If I've been uh, seven years now clear of colorectal cancer, but I had surgery and some other procedures at that time, and I had to go for a lot of different tests. And when I went in kind of naive to what was involved, it was fine. But then there were times when some of those tests weren't that pleasant. And I had to go for it again in six months' time. And all of a sudden, I had a different outlook on all of this because I knew what was coming. Well, Jesus, 
He, he knows what's coming, and he knows it's not pleasant, and he's not excited about it. So just imagine the anxiety and the anguish he experienced in knowing what would happen. He knew that the Old Testament prophets predicted his arrival. He knew that Isaiah said he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, that he would actually be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds that we would be spiritually healed. So Jesus prays, and Matthew's gospel tells us that he actually prays three times for this cup to be lifted, for this burden to be lifted. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So it doesn't make sense to think that he was now afraid of insult and pain and death because he, he had faced this for weeks now. But the cup that he drank was different. The cup that he's talking about here, it, it didn't symbolize the physical pain of being whipped and crucified. It didn't symbolize the mental distress of being despised and rejected, but rather that cup represented the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world because this is what he was going to do. He was going to endure divine judgment for all those sins, the sins that we deserve judgment for. In 2 Corinthians 5, it said, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we might become right with God. So here was this man who was sinless, yet he had to take all of our sins upon him in order for us to be made right with God. The second emotion that he experiences is coming from a lack of commitment. He thought he had committed followers, but on this night, he finds out how their hearts really are. So we're now in verse 45. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So you can kind of understand where the disciples are coming from. It's been a busy week. They're exhausted. They've just eaten a big meal together. And he takes them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're lying there. And he tells them to pray and to be on the alert. I guess I've had a few other physical issues over the years. When I was 21... I had a grand mal seizure, and over the next two years, I had six of them. So after the last one, they decided, you're going to Halifax for some tests. So in Charlottetown, I had an EEG, and at that time, this is 1981, they stuck little pins in your head, which was connected to every electrode that was part of the test, and it didn't feel that great. So I was going to Halifax for another EEG and then to meet the specialist. And uh, here they put little uh, dabs of cold cream on your head and then it was just a little pad with the electrode attached to it. And we had to get up at four o'clock to drive here in time for the appointment. So they call me in, they put the electrodes onto those little pads and they tell me to lie down, close my eyes, and relax. So what comes next? 
sleep. Of course it did. And over and over again, I was being awakened by this pen smacking on the metal, waking me up. But I can understand what these apostles were going through. They, they just kept falling asleep on Jesus. So then Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus then took the three who were the closest to him, like John and Peter and James, and he took them a little closer while he was praying because he felt that they were the most capable of understanding his suffering. But now he's even cut off from them in his most difficult hour when he comes back. And he says, how could you guys fall asleep? So loneliness now sets in. And loneliness is an overwhelming emotion. And, and have you ever been lonely? Now that doesn't mean alone because sometimes we actually need to be on our own. There are periods in our life when we experience that. But we can be in a crowd and we can be alone. Because here's Jesus in his most difficult time. He's surrounded by his closest followers. They're not that far away. And yet they let him down and he feels lonely. So he withdraws and he goes to God, the only one who will listen. Ken Geyer writes that Jesus brings with him his closest disciples. He knows they're tired, but he needs these three as a cloak against the night. And he stations them nearby to watch and pray. And alone in the clearing, Jesus falls to his knees and then to the ground. And seen through the foliage are these drops of mortality and humanity. For Jesus was never more human than he was now, never more weak, never more sad. He wrestles with prayer, but his prayer, it's no well-constructed sonnet. It's whispered inside. His words are underscored with sobs, and he prays to his father like a little boy. And on this night, no good gifts come from heaven, because there is no other way given by his father by which all of us can be saved. The third emotion he experiences is rejection from a friend. Judas leads this band of Roman soldiers and the, the Jewish officials to arrest Jesus, who willingly gives himself up to them. So Judas actually had to be a fairly close follower as well. He was the treasurer of the group of 12 disciples. So he had to have been trusted and it's only hours after this that Peter, who said, I will never deny you, had actually denied knowing Jesus because someone came up to him and said, surely you were with him because you are a Galilean. And Peter's response was, no way, man. I don't know what you're talking about. And as soon as he said that, the rooster crowed and he remembered the prediction that Jesus had made. So this is even worse than the actions of the treasurer of the group. This is one of his three closest followers who's now lying to save his own skin. So Peter's rejection would have hurt more than Judas's betrayal. Now, have you ever been at a point of despair due to rejection? And this isn't because some young woman said no to you when you asked her out on a date. This is where you can't believe that your best friend just stabbed you in the back. This is where you can't believe that 
this person did this to you. You think about it constantly, and it hurts too much to talk about. That's where Jesus is at here right now. So then we see his last emotion, and that is to surrender to God's plan. Now this is the part that astonishes us. He surrenders, he gives in to this army of people that comes to him when he could have done what we see when we watch some science fiction where they will freeze people right in, in place and then they can walk right through that crowd and get away. And Jesus could have easily done that. He could have frozen everybody right in place and just walked away to his safety. But he doesn't. Out of obedience, he surrenders because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. So in verse 49, Luke records, when those who were standing around him saw what was happening, they said, Lord, should we strike them with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, stop, no more of this. Then he touched the servant's ear and healed him. So these soldiers, they appear out of nowhere and they've got their big swords there and they're ready to arrest Jesus. But Peter, the one who had been brave at one point and said that he was never going to deny Jesus, he jumps up with a small sword and slices the ear off one of the many in that group. But Jesus looks at him and he says, no, we don't need to fight. And he touches the guy's ear and heals him. And a few minutes ago in his prayer, he had said, I don't want to drink this cup, but now he surrenders to the will of his father and he submits to this inferior army. And he will now have the strength and ability to handle his fate through the power of the Holy Spirit. So maybe he just needed a little reinforcement from his father. Reinforcement that there was no other way that humankind could be saved. But he was now ready to endure what he had to, what he knew that he must. I have what C.S. Lewis said here. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. And after that, the idea that prayer is recommended to us as a sort of infallible gimmick may be dismissed. Because after this time of prayer and receiving the no answer, Jesus is ready to move ahead. And this is a reminder to us that we aren't going to receive a yes answer to all the prayers that we offer. If Jesus got a no, why do we think that we are always going to get a yes? So it isn't some type of gimmick. I like the way that C.S. Lewis put that. So verse 52, those who came to arrest Jesus were the leading priests, the soldiers who guarded the temple, and the elders. And Jesus said to them, you came out here with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal. I was with you every day in the temple, and you didn't arrest me there. But this is your time, the time when darkness rules. That's why they call Satan the prince of darkness, because he controls darkness. And John's gospel of this section concludes with Jesus saying, shouldn't I drink the cup the father gave me? And then he surrendered himself to God's plan. So there are four observations that we can apply to our own situation. 
First of all, Jesus knows how you feel. The boss told you that you were going to get that promotion, and then he gave it to someone else. The salesperson gave you his word, like this is a done deal, and then he turned around and made the deal with someone else. Your spouse said, till death do us part, but then he or she got involved with that new employee at work. Hebrews 4 says, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has gone into heaven. Let us hold on to the faith we have. For our high priest is able to understand our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Let us then feel very sure that we can come before God's throne where there is grace. There we can receive mercy and grace to help us when we need it. So Jesus didn't just play his trump card and say, well, I'm God and I don't have to worry about sin or temptation. I can just be above that and no temptations will ever come my way. But instead, he faced it head on in the presence and company and power of the Holy Spirit. And he conquered every single temptation that came his way. He can relate to your temptations. He knows how you feel. And then Jesus loved you enough to lay down his life for you. In John 10, the apostle wrote, The Father loves me because I give my life so that I can take it back again. No one takes it away from me. I give my own life freely. I have the right to give my life, and I have the right to take it back. And this is what my Father commanded me to do. And he backed that up. He laid down his life, and three days after that, he was brought back to life again. He picked it back up. And one problem for us, if we've been Christians for a long time, is that we tend to miss out on the newness of the fact that Jesus loved us enough to actually lay down his life for us. I read about a four-year-old boy who was looking at a picture of the bleeding Jesus, and it was actually the front cover of a brochure that his church had put together because they were doing a musical on the crucifixion of Jesus. And that little four-year-old boy was looking at the picture with his grandmother, and he said, well, well, that just broke my heart. And we may kind of smile or laugh at that little guy's adult-like comment, but we must ask ourselves, does that break our heart anymore? We want to have the freshness and newness of a four-year-old looking at the cross and realizing that Jesus loved me enough to lay down his life for me. And then we notice that Jesus suffered for you to save you from sin. I'm reading from Hebrews 2. Since these children are people with physical bodies, Jesus himself became like them. He did this so that by dying, he could destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and free those who were like slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. Clearly, It is not angels that Jesus helps, but the people who are from Abraham. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could be their merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. 
Then Jesus could die in their place to take away their sins, and now he can help those who are tempted because he himself suffered and was tempted. Then Jesus could die in their place to take away their sins. That's why he became a human being, so that he could suffer and die for each one of us. And then Jesus wants to transform your darkness into light. Remember what Jesus said when he was being arrested? He said, but this is your time, the time when darkness rules. So darkness was formed to Jesus because he was the light of the world. And he wants us to be lights for him as well. And he wants us to be a reflection of him. Uh, Warren Wearsby summed this up by saying, each of us must decide whether we will go through life pretending like Judas or fighting like Peter, or yielding to God's will like Jesus. So which will it be? A kiss, a sword, or a cup? See, maybe your heart has never been broken over what Christ did for you. And today, would you see him broken on a cross? Would you see him and his humanity in that garden when he was praying? But don't stop there. Like that author said, allow him to come into the mess of your life so that he can pull you out of that. That's his divinity. Maybe you've been praying for a way out. Well, God has provided that way for you in the person of Jesus Christ, who was both human and divine.